For those of us remaining in the room, our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, I heartily encourage you to open up there and see these words for yourself. Luke chapter 17, we're going to read verses 11 through 19. Good page turning sounds. This is the word of the Lord. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before your word in a spirit of thanksgiving. That we can read your scriptures and learn learn what you have for us is truly wonderful. But God, learning from your scriptures is only as good as we can actually encounter you in them. So meet with us, God. We don't want to read the word just to learn more information. We want to know you. We want to be transformed into the image of your son. We want to grow deeper in intimate connection and relationship with you by the presence and power of Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus. And so here we are, Father. This whole thing is pointless if you're not in it 
So please set me aside, Lord. Find my tongue and my lips that no false word might pass from them, but rather speak your voice to our hearts. You know what we need. You know what we need. And so here we are. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever learned something from the most unexpected place? Like somebody or something says something that is really impactful and you you just didn't see it coming at all. Uh, This happened to me the other day. My son, Ellis, he's one and a half and this boy loves to read. He's like his daddy. He loves to read books from the time we get him out of the crib in the morning at 7 a.m. to move to the couch. Within about five seconds of sitting on the couch in the living room, he points at the bookshelf and says, and I say to him, Ellis, if you want a book, go and get one and bring it back because I'm raising a functional human being. And Uh, So he gets off the couch, and he toddles over to the shelf. He picks out a book, and he toddles back, and he clambers back up onto the couch, hands me the book, and sits down and lets me read this book to him. And he would be content for us to repeat this process for hours. I mean, it feels like every night when we're cleaning up the living room before bed, uh, we put back every book he owns on the shelf because he has just gone, book, eh, Eh, and we read him these books. Now, if any of you know how to break into the kids' book industry, please let me know, because these books are not very good. All right? It, I feel like I could write a kid's book in my sleep, especially for these, you know, the, these little, like, cardboard books, the baby books. You know, if you've read these, you know they are not very good. Uh, it's either, like, you're making no money, or if, if there is money in this industry. This is the best kept secret. How do I get into this? The church would have not have to pay me a salary anymore. It would be great. Uh, If you have a connection, let me know because I could write a kid's book. You could write a kid's book. Uh, We could just make it and be happy. But so these books, they're not all that interesting. Now, a couple of them, when he grabs them and brings them, I see what he's bringing. I'm like, okay, this book has a decent story, like uh, The Little Blue Truck. Um, That's a pretty good book. Or Bear Snores On, if you've read Bear Snores On, pretty good. Most of these books are super boring and super terrible. He has one book that he brought to me the other day uh, that's kind of in the middle. It's not terrible, but it's not great. It's called How Big is Love by Amy Parker. I'm sorry, Amy, your book is decent, but you, you did blow me away in an unexpected way. We were reading this book, How Big is Love, and it's about a mother hedgehog and her child. And they're spending the day together, and the whole premise is the child is asking its mother, Mama, how big is love? And as they go through their day, he asks more and more questions. Is it brighter than the sun? She says, yes, the love is the brightest thing in the world. And then it's like, is it, is it longer than this bike ride? Oh, 
And she's like, love goes on forever. It's like, is it yummier than these cookies? Love is the sweetest thing in the world. You know, it's, it's like not that great of a book. But you get to the last page, and Amy Parker blew me away on the last page of this book. I don't even know if she knows how rich this line that she wrote into the book is. The mama hedgehog looks at her child and says, our love grows every time we give it away. Our love grows every time we give it away. Think about that with me for a second. This principle is a universal truth, and I'll show it to you. It, it can be for good or for evil. When we give away our love to something, that love for that thing or person grows. Think about this. The most common example is in a dating relationship that leads to marriage, right? You, you begin going on dates with someone, spending time with them, and, and you at the beginning, you offer just little acts of love, right? Maybe you plan a nice dinner or a nice outing, and, and you offer love to that person, you begin to say nice things about them. And, and the more you spend time and give away your love, the, the more the love grows and grows until you get to a point where your love for this person is so big that you'd be willing to say, I don't want to love anyone else in the world the way that I love you for the rest of my life, and you make a covenant of marriage. Our love grows every time we give it away. But this is true also if we offer our love to the wrong things. Maybe it's offering love to some sort of coping mechanism. We have pain in our life and we want to escape. And so we drink a little too much. Right? And, and you just drink a little too, just a little bit too much at the beginning. Just kind of dip your toe in the water. And it felt kind of nice. Right to get some some relief, some escape. So you, you go a little further, and you go a little further. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be an addiction to pornography or sex. You just dip your toe a little bit in the water, and every time you dip your toe in the water, it gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier and a little bit harder to say no. When we give our love away to an addiction, it grows and grows to the point where we say no to everything else but that addiction until it destroys us. Our love grows every time we give it away. I did not expect to read something that powerful in this mediocre kid's book. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is the author of Luke, of course. He also wrote the book of Acts, and, and Luke and Acts are kind of a part one and part two of Luke's Gospel. And something that, that marks Luke's Gospel specifically is that it's very geographically driven. As we're reading in Luke and in Acts, we see uh, the story progresses every time Luke makes a geographical kind of transitional statement. We have one that opens up our passage today in Luke 17, verse 11. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, it's, this transitional geographical phrase marks that the story is moving 
forward. Now, it says that he's on his way to Jerusalem, but it's a continuation. So to figure out exactly where this started and why he's going to Jerusalem, we turn back a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 9. And the first nine chapters of Luke's gospel encompass all of Jesus' birth, his growth into adulthood, and his three years of ministry. And in chapter 9, we get right up to either all the way to Holy Week or almost to Holy Week. And and we have this signal phrase in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that, that transitions the story from Jesus' life and ministry into his death and resurrection. Luke 9, 51 says this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I love that phrase, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. If you've read the Gospels much, you've heard Jesus say, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. All throughout his ministry, he's saying, my time has not yet come. And yet here in Luke chapter 9, the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. And so Jesus turns with unflappable resolution to walk toward his death. And from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, through the end of the gospel, Jesus is walking toward his death, and nothing will stop him from taking one step after the other to get to the cross for you and for me. Resolutely, he set his face toward Jerusalem. I love that. So what sort of journey is this walk from Jerusalem. Leading up to Luke chapter 9, Jesus had been ministering in the the land of the Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. I have a map to show you, just so you can get a picture of what this walk is like. And I am going to use a laser pointer because I'm cool. And because this is too small for you to see. Uh, So this is the Sea of Galilee right here. And all this land around it is the land of the Galilee. This is where Jesus has been ministering. And down here... This little dot is Jerusalem. All right, so Jesus sets out. He turns his face from here toward Jerusalem. And I did a little map on Google Maps from Tiberias, this little city right here, to Jerusalem, just to see what sort of walk this would be. And it's about, we don't know, the roads are different now, but it would be at least about a 30-hour walk of consistent walking. So if Jesus were to just set his face and walk without stopping to eat, rest, or talk with anyone, it would take him about 30 hours. However, we know that this journey took him longer than that because in the chapters from 9 to 17, um, there's a lot of stuff that happens. Jesus is healing, he's teaching, he's casting out demons. And in chapter 17, it says he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Sorry, can can I get the map one more time to show where Samaria is? So Samaria is this area right here. So he'd been here, he's gotten to about here, and he's on his way down. So in eight chapters, he's not quite gotten halfway. And Jesus is resolutely walking toward Jerusalem. And in 17, verse 12, it says, As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. 
In your Bible, if yours is like mine, you might have a little footnote next to the word leprosy that says the Greek word for leprosy is translated uh, into English leprosy, but it means a wide variety of skin diseases. So we have a modern day leprosy that we know of, and it's a debilitating, absolutely debilitating disease. Um, And these 10 men are known as lepers, but they didn't necessarily have our modern-day leprosy. They may have, but they may have had any number of skin conditions um, that is just kind of broadly translated as leprosy. And so we know that, um, at best, their physical condition was uh, pretty severely irritating and, at worst, fatal. But we do know a little more specifics about uh, what it meant to be a leper in biblical time. What it meant to be a leper in biblical time is that you were completely cut off from your community. As soon as someone was diagnosed with leprosy, they were kicked out of their community and they had to go to the outskirts of any sort of civilization because if they were to pass that leprosy, whatever the skin condition it was, to anyone in the community, it could just spread like wildfire with no cure, no hope, and it could just wipe out an entire community like that. And so they took leprosy very seriously. And this dates all the way back to Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, where God, in his goodness towards his people Israel, put some laws in place to get people who had leprosy out of the community. So that feels good for those who are on the inside of the community, but just think about it for a second from the perspective of the leper. In a patriarchal society where family means everything, to be kicked away from your family and outside of civilization, not only did it mean loneliness and isolation, but it meant a life sentence of poverty. If you're not a part of the community, where's your next meal going to come from? If you're not a part of the community, where's your shelter I mean, you, you probably lived in, like, your great-great-grandfather's home, his little home compound, and now you're just out. Terrible, terrible situation, whatever the physical condition. In biblical times, leprosy also marked you as one morally unclean. It didn't just mean physically unclean, it marked you as morally unclean. And and to make matters worse, you had to go around wearing these special clothed coverings, body coverings that kind of marked you as a leper. And you would walk around, as soon as you saw someone in the distance, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that no one would accidentally come near you. And everyone who saw you thought, There goes that leper. What did they do wrong to put themselves in this position? Maybe you have felt like this sort of outcast before. Maybe you've felt that unclean. Right? We get, we get to hide it a little bit better. We get to walk around without the the special coverings over our skin. But We can't do anything about the feeling on our inside of unclean, right? Maybe you've been giving away your love to the wrong 
things for a long time. And you feel totally isolated. Let me tell you, the, the number one thing that the devil wants to tell you when you are caught in sin is that you're the only one like this and everyone would be just so embarrassed to know you if they found out. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There is one who can cleanse your uncleanliness. For the lepers in biblical times, there was one way that was provided in the law of Moses uh, to be cleansed. It started with uh, appearing before a priest. And so you would go to the temple, the house of worship, which was in Jerusalem, where Jesus is going, and you would appear before the priest, and the priest would examine your skin. And they would kind of take stock of how you were doing, and then you would go into this isolation chamber for a period of seven days, at which point the priest would examine you again, and if it looked like you were getting a little bit better, then you could stay another seven days, and they would check you like this every seven days to see how you were recovering from your leprosy. And if at any point you got all the way better to where they could declare you clean, that then began the process of a ritual cleansing. If at any point they decided you're not getting better, you're getting worse, or you're staying the same, right back out into the wilderness you go. But if you get to the point where the, the priest can diagnose your skin as, as healed, you had a chance. There was a, a ritual sacrifice for cleansing, and it was not only meant to cleanse the body, but it was meant to cleanse that moral uncleanness that marked everyone who was known as a leper. A series of sacrifices and rituals for the priest ministering on your behalf to clean you up, and then you could be reintegrated into society. And in Luke 17, Jesus comes across these lepers exactly where we'd expect them to be. It says in verse 12, As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance. They stood at a distance. These men have been living for who knows how long outside of community, and yet they've formed a little sort of community, the ten lepers. Probably the villages knew them, knew to steer clear of where they would hang out. But Jesus came close enough to be hollered at by these ten lepers. And they must have known something about Jesus, too, because they call him Master. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And then I love this. It says in verse 14, in the response, when he saw them. There's so much power in that little phrase. When he saw them. Oh, what is it for Jesus to see you in your unclean state? And not to run away, but to lean in. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. 
Now, it's interesting here is Jesus has healed a lot of people, including some lepers, and a lot of times he heals them right there on the spot. At the last encounter with the leper, the leper said, Master, if you will, you can heal me. And Jesus said, I will be clean. And he touched the man, and the man was clean right there on the spot. But these men, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say anything, actually, about healing them. He says, go, show yourself to the priests. And so they have a decision to make. If you go and show yourself to the priest, you risk kind of a, a, this embarrassment of appearing before the community and being sent back out into exile. So what were they going to do? Were they going to trust this Jesus whom they believed in enough to say, Master, have pity on us? And would they go and risk everything or would they stay where they were? Well, it says that as they went, they were cleansed. They put their faith in action to walk toward Jerusalem from where they were north of Samaria and go to the temple And as they went, before they arrived, they were cleansed. Now, this step of faith in action, it's a really big step. Has God ever called you to go somewhere without telling you what would happen where you're going? Right? If you've been called by God to go without knowing exactly where you're going, to walk by faith, not by sight, you know how big of a deal this was for these 10 lepers. But this was a really big deal for them, but it was a really, really big deal for one of the 10. We're told that one of the 10 men is a Samaritan. And by implication, the other nine are Jews. Scripturally implied, the other nine are Jews. One of them is a Samaritan. Now, for this man, going to the temple would be a really, really big deal, even more so than the nine Jews who were told to go. And here's why. For centuries and centuries and centuries, Jews and Samaritans have absolutely hated one another. And somehow we find one Samaritan with this community of Jews, and they have like their own little community and shared suffering, broke down the walls that divided them, and that's a whole other sermon for another day. Um, But Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. It goes back a thousand years to around a thousand BC when the kingdom of Israel was split between the north and the south. Is the first place that we see a little bit of evidence of this animosity in the relationship. Samaritans and Jews are both Israelites, but they hate each other. Continuing on, we see um, that this animosity grew as the Jews were carried into exile in Babylon, but the Samaritans were left at home, but it wasn't a peachy situation because they were invaded by the Assyrians. And when the Jews finally were released from exile to come back to their destroyed city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, they were a bit angry with the Samaritans because they hadn't been exiled and the Jews had, and they were jealous. But they began at this time to call Samaritans half-breeds. And they called them half-breeds because the Assyrians had invaded not only their town, but the Jews believed had invaded the family line of the Samaritans. And so they would call them a half-breed, which again, in this patriarchal society, it's a huge insult. Your family is everything, and to call someone a half-breed, huge insult. And so the, the rift between the two deepened. 
And it continued on all the way until uh, Nehemiah, who was sent from Babylon to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, kicked out the, the grandson of the high priest for marrying a Samaritan woman and sent him away. And so the, the governor of Samaria responded by building their own temple where they could conduct worship here in Samaria. And the Jews said, we believe we have the only true place of worship. And the Samaritans said, well, you kicked us out, so we have the true place of worship. And it just wasn't good. All the way up to 100 years prior to Jesus' birth, uh, the Jews went and destroyed the temple in Samaria. And around the time of Jesus' birth, a hundred years later, the Samaritans retaliated by desecrating the Jewish temple with a bunch of dead bones that they spread around. Absolute enmity and hatred between these two people. We even see it in Jesus' journey just when he sets his face to Jerusalem, one of the villages he tried to stop in was a Samaritan village, and they sent him away just because he was going to Jerusalem. And so for this one Samaritan leper to be told, go and show yourself to the priest, the priest at Jerusalem, the priest in the temple whom your people desecrated just 30 years ago, Can you imagine what that would have been like for him? He's already an outcast, exiled from his family, exiled from his home, unclean in body and soul. He already gets dirty looks from everyone, and and Jesus wants him to walk into Jerusalem up to the priest at the temple without any promise of if he'll be healed or not. Try to put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. Verse 14. As they went, they were cleansed. And then 15 opens with this little phrase, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. Now, do you see the implication there? He saw that he was healed. All right, so picture with me these 10 guys, this little community are walking along the way, and God heals them from afar because they put their faith in action, but they didn't realize it at first. All right, so they're walking, they're wearing this crazy clothing over all their skin, and they're walking along, and one of them's like, wait a second, my skin doesn't hurt. Pulls back his covering. He's like, God, look, my my skin, look. And they look at each other and they begin to take off their covering. Your face. We're healed. He healed us. And they begin to rejoice and celebrate. And we're told that one man, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then these fateful words. And he was a Samaritan. Even Jesus seems to be surprised at this turn of events. Verse 17, Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? 
Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This one phrase, made you well, is summed up in one Greek word. It's the word sozo. Say it with me. Sozo. And this Greek word is translated here in the NIV as made you well, but it actually has a deeper meaning. To be sozo, yes, meant to be made well physically, but it also meant to be made well spiritually. Ten men were healed, yes, but only one was saved. The nine Jews went on, we presume, to the priest that they knew. They got what they wanted from Jesus. And they went and showed themselves to the priests they knew and they were reinstated into community. But this one foreigner, this one foreigner, bless him, he went to the priest that he knew. He went to the great high priest, to Jesus. Ten were healed, only one was saved, and the most unexpected, even Jesus, seemed surprised. Brothers and sisters, in this story, you and me are the Samaritan. We are the ones who have been cleansed physically, who have been cleansed spiritually. Jesus has saved our souls, and we go to the priest that we know. Go to the person of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just want to cleanse you of the guilt of your sin. He wants to change your life. Whatever these habits are, wherever you've been giving your love away in the wrong places, Jesus wants to change your life. You don't have to feel spiritually unclean. You don't have to feel isolated in society and community. Jesus wants to change your life. Go to the priest you know. Go to him day after day, morning and evening. Find cleansing in his smile. And when he saw them, when Jesus sees you, rejoice. Rejoice. The one who moves us from helpless sinner to healed healer. Rejoice. And let us join our voices together with all the unexpected of the world. And tell them of the priest that we know. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Oh, that you would see us. Oh, that you would see us where we feel alone and isolated, unseen, unknown, that you would see us. You are our great high priest. In you alone is the power to heal body and to heal our souls. To save us from certain death and to save us 
from our patterns of sin. Help us to walk by faith, not by sight, as the ten lepers did. But may we be counted among those who came back, who throw ourselves at your feet day after day, who sing praise, who give thanks. We thank you for your grace, O Jesus. And we love you. Help us to give our love to you more and more that it might grow every time we give it away. And Father, as we continue into this time of offering, we pray your blessing on the gifts and the givers alike, that the gifts might be multiplied and used to bear incredible fruit in your community and your kingdom, bringing your kingdom in Creekside as it is in heaven. And we pray for the givers, that they would be blessed with the freedom that comes from giving things away. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.